Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Affinity Christian Ministries podcast. My name is James, and I'm joined with the usual. Today, we're going to be talking with a special guest on a pretty unusual topic, but it is prevalent within the Bible, and it is something to speak about. I mean, wouldn't you guys agree? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, Mason, why don't you... Oh, yeah, Jonathan, what are you going to say? Mason's going to head us up on this one here. This is definitely his forte, and uh, and his guest speaker as well. Mason? Yeah, go ahead, Mason. So, today we're going to be having a friend of mine, Jason McLean, join us on the podcast. Jason McLean is a cryptozoologist and creation science advocate, uh, and he had an amazing experience with something that was has been told to us by the mainstream scientific community that went extinct millions of years ago. And if you read the Bible, you know that God created everything within six days and rested on the seventh. So that means dinosaurs had to have been created within mm. the six-day creation. Yep. Mm, Amen. Interesting. They, there's no such thing as millions of years, folks. That stuff is bunk mm-hmm. So uh, without further ado today, we are going to get Jason here on the line with us. And we're going to have a good time. We're going to talk about still living dinosaurs, which were formerly known as dragons all throughout time until the creation of the word dinosaur in 1841 by Sir Richard Owen. So without further ado, folks, we're going to be getting Jason on. I'm going to call him right now. Here we go. Hey, Jason, welcome to the Affinity Christian Ministries podcast. It's awesome to have you on. Uh, thank you. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this. I know. We, we have been looking forward to this all week long ever since we got this uh, arranged and set up. It's going to be an awesome time. Um, so, Jason, I did give, our, I did give the uh, podcast a little bit of a background on you, uh, but I would like to, for you to go and introduce yourself, what you're about, and uh, then we're going to go right into your unusual experience experiences. And, and Jason, uh, I'm Jonathan, I'm Mason's dad, and... I'm James. Uh, I'm just one of the guys with the ministry, no one special. <laughs> we call him the Podfather because he heads our podcasts. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> All right, well, it's a pleasure to meet you all. You too, Jason. You too, Jason. So go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I, I, I think probably the easiest thing to say is I'm an artist. I'm a typical paranormal researcher and creation, uh, creation science advocate. Um, I, you know, I get a day job like most of us do, but uh, every Monday I'm, you can find me on Texas Front Porch uh, where, where we discuss cryptozoology, the paranormal, all kinds of things. Um and I also have a uh, Bible study channel. Uh, I do a broadcast, uh, a live broadcast every Thursday and Sunday. Again, talking scripture, right? Um, all of my emphasis is on the beginning of the book and the end of the book because I believe the middle of the book is what's really important. Mm. Um, but we like to talk about deeper, you know, not just sort of the things you'll find in, in every, you know, sort of superficial level, but really get into the text. Amen. Get into the background of the tech and really ask those questions that a lot of people find uncomfortable from time to time. But, well, um, yeah, we, I believe that the paranormal, cryptozoology, it's all part of the larger story. And if, I believe if we could understand that, we'd understand a lot more about the universe around us. Amen. Amen. So, Jason, why don't you go ahead and start off with your what really got you started in cryptozoology? Because I remember hearing you talk about it, and I've heard so many other uh, stories and other men giving their depositions of these still living dinosaurs, a.k.a. what I just call dragons in general, uh, and that they're still living. Mm-hmm. So why don't you go ahead and give us an in-depth an in-depth tale of your experience? I'd be, I'd be happy to. Um, 
So it's 1992. It's the summer, right? Texas. So it's hot. Like it just, it just is. It's between June and August. It's just hot. Um, but we, uh, so I lived in this. I used to live in DeSoto, Texas. It's a suburb of Dallas. Like that's Dallas is our border, right? Well, there is a creek that runs straight through it. And uh, it's called the Ten Mile Creek. If you can imagine, you know about how long it runs, but it, it gets over to the Trinity. Um, the thing is, like a lot of the major creeks in the area, uh, most of North Texas sits on a big limestone slab. So this creek has really cut deeply into that limestone. Uh, it's like fifteen, twenty feet deep at certain places, as far as you know the the walls. Um, so you really can't even get into it except for a few spots where the wall had collapsed and created a bank. Well, you know, you could go back there and basically pretend you were in the middle of nowhere because there's trees on either side of the of this creek, and the foliage is so thick you can't see through it, right? And basically it's like that all over Dallas. Um, wherever there are roads or creeks, you can't see into any of it because it's so thick. So, you, you know, you're basically all by yourself back there. Well, I... Had just gotten done uh, fishing with a friend. He had already gone up the embankment and into the tree line. I'm following him. It's about 11 a.m. and I hear the sound, like ugly crow, is the only is the only description I have for this. Right? Um, and it doesn't sound like anything I've ever heard. I mean, I lived out there. I knew what everything sounded like and whatever they looked like. So I just kind of poked my head out from behind the tree line. And I see what I think for uh, at first is the biggest blue heron I've ever seen in my life, hmm. right? It's about the right color. Um, it sort of has that that heron shape where it has the S curve of the neck and everything. And, and I think I see its legs behind it. And I'm like, but man, this thing's big because the, the creek's about, you know, 10, 15 feet wide in some places, 20 feet wide in some places. So. I can see how big this thing is. It's definitely got an eight to ten foot wingspan. I'm like, man, that's a big blue heron. But then it gets five feet from my face because I, it's basically going right past me, and the wingtip is less than five feet from my face. And I realize this thing doesn't have any feathers. Mm-hmm. Wow. And what I thought had been its legs sticking out behind it was actually a tail with a flange on the end. Wow. And I. I'm sort of in a straightaway for the creek, so I get a, I get a good look at this thing as it's going away from me for like ten seconds, right? And I can see that it, its overall body shape is very, you know. Now that I kind of have this idea of what I'm looking at, I can tell that it looks very much like a, 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 a heron, but not perfectly. And then it banks around. I can definitely really see the, you know. That's membranous, and this is a, a reptilian creature with a tail. This isn't a bird. And uh, my friend literally came down just as I was just kind of dumbfounded, and he's like, "You coming or what?" And I'm like, "Did you just see that that pterodactyl?" Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he laughs, thinks, says, "I'm crazy," and <laughs> and I tell myself I have to be crazy, right? And so I spend the next probably twenty years or so telling myself that I was crazy. Um. And the thing is, at this point, I was, and still am, a young Earth creationist. I believe that there were dinosaurs running around. Like, yep, dinosaurs, dragons, same thing. But I told myself, I live in Dallas, Texas, 
right? Or DeSoto, Texas, just outside of Dallas, Texas. Things like that don't exist here, right? That's like in the jungles of Congo, of like Mokele and Bimbe, or it's, um, you know, hanging out in Papua New Guinea with the Ropen. Those things don't exist in Dallas, Texas. And it wasn't until really just a few years ago. And, you know, I'd gotten into cryptozoology, the paranormal. I'd already gotten into all this a long time ago. And my first book is even on search proving that the wyvern is a ramphoractoid pterodactyl, which is what I saw. Hmm. Um, we'll talk about that in a second. But it wasn't until I talked to, I had known Ken Gerhardt and Lyle Blackburn for a while up to this point. I kind of made a sn- uh, just a funny comment, and they're like, yeah, actually, that would be great, because they're looking for sightings of, of, of things. They're like, yeah, it would be great, because we're doing an, uh, an episode on uh, pterodactyls in southern Oklahoma, and I'm like, you're doing a what, where now? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't until, and again, it's like Ken Gerhardt did the book Big Bird, right, you know, about these living pterosaurs in Texas, but again, I always heard them down around San Antonio, around the Rio Grande Valley, which all made perfect sense to me. Not Dallas, Texas. But come to find out that in, you know, they showed me some of the interviews and some of these other images and things made by other uh, witnesses in southern Oklahoma and from North Texas. And I'm like, that is exactly what I saw. So I, I kind of got in my head to do this book. And so I started, I, I just started talking. And all of a sudden I started to realize there were people who were seeing these things where I live and in basically the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex area, people were seeing these things. Um, and what's weird is even my best friend who lives just like less than a mile from where I had my, uh, from where I had my encounter just a few months ago came back. It was like, dude, um, long story short, this is what I saw. And, you know, he was thinking Mothman. I'm like, no, you just saw it, but from underneath. You saw what I saw. Hmm. And it's, it's just so many people are seeing these things. And it's, But the problem is everyone is afraid to speak up. And I think if you'd asked me even two or three years ago how much my sighting influenced my life, I would say not at all. Right? I just, I was on a trajectory. But I think what it, but looking back at it now, I can realize that, Seeing a living ramphoractoid pterodactyl in a creek in DeSoto, Texas, while, when I was 12, it set me up to realize the entire universe is not what we think it is, or not what we're told it is. Let me rephrase it that way. Right, right. Yep. It is, ultimately, it's why I've never been able to not believe in young Earth creation, why I was never turned away from cryptozoology, because they are the exploration of the things that the world tells you not to look at. Right, it's the man behind the curtain that no one wants you to look. That no one wants you to investigate. So that's my story. Wow. So Jason, <clears throat> now it was after this experience that really launched your research into cryptozoology, still living dinosaurs, and uh, I know that you've written a, co- a couple books on it. So why don't you go ahead and tell us about the books and your research? Not not only just uh, still living dinosaurs, but other things in the cryptozoology field. Right. Um, so one thing real quick, I, it's, it's, a, it's a minor point, but I think it's, it's, it's sort of an interesting point worth noting. 
the the pterodactyls or the pterosaurs, the rampart. What I saw was a rampartoid, which is one of the, you know most people think Flintstones when they hear pterodactyl, they think of the pteranodon, beak, crest, no tail or short stubby tail. You know what I saw was a rampartoid. I do believe which are which were smaller. They typically didn't have crests, although some people around here are seeing a crest on some of them a smaller, stubbier crest. Uh, they basically look like flying lizards because that's what they are, right? They have a flange tail. Um, so they, they're basically just flying reptiles. They're technically not dinosaurs. They're just they're flying reptiles. And I think the key reason for that and, and why that's important is when we look through the, the history of these I, you know, I think dragons is, is as valid a name for them as any. I do believe that like, the Rampractoids were the basis for what we would call a wyvern, right? We see them all through European uh, heraldic art. And uh, like I said, my first really terrible booklet on cryptozoology was called Wyvern. Like, that's what it was about. It was sort of proving through art of the time um, why people had to have been seeing a Rampractoid pterodactyl. Uh, versus making this up out of nowhere, right? Like, people were seeing the same creature, and they were describing very particular things. Uh, so that was sort of like my first book. I then did some some work on uh, uh, eschatology for a couple of years on the Revelation 12 alignment, and then I, I decided to get back into cryptozoology, and uh, so I wrote the book How UFOs and Bigfoot Prove the Bible is True, and then I decided to do Metroplex Monsters, which will be coming out, uh, you know, from an actual press. Uh, this uh, actually in October fifth. Hmm, awesome. And um, that one's more about that one's less. I don't want to say preachy, but yeah, it's definitely less preachy. It's more just saying, hey, here's what we're seeing, and it's we talk about the pterodactyls, we talk about Bigfoot, we talk about um, some of the aquatic monsters that have been seen, uh, myths. And then uh, lore, but then also some of the some of the more clearly supernatural creatures that are seen in and around the Dallas uh, metroplex area. Hmm, awesome. So, so Jason, what? Because I I've been looking into this stuff for quite some time now, uh, and I actually got my mind blown uh, when I was going through my initial awakening over three and a half years ago. You know, I had been a Christian. I had been a churchian you know, for the majority of my life. And it was about, uh-huh. it was about three yeah. and a half years ago where I actually went through my awakening. And um, I actually came across Dr. Ken Hoven, which I'm sure you know of him. I came across his yeah. seminar series on dinosaurs in the Bible, and it blew my mind because I'd never had, I never had heard that before. I never had pieced it together. And all, all of right. a sudden I start looking into all these sightings uh, pertaining to, you know, the Loch Ness monster and how, and to me, it's obvious that that's a plesiosaur of some type, uh, things like the Ogopogo, which I think is along the same lines of some type of plesiosaur or aquatic, uh, reptilian. Um, and then it also got me into all these other sightings. Yes. In Texas, there's, I, I would even, I, I believe that there's even, there's close to, uh, there's th- at least, a th- there's at least thousands of sightings of things of the pterosaur nature or the pterosaur species uh, that are being cited in Texas every single year. And down in South yeah. and down in South America, there's been sightings of ankylosauruses, pterodactyls or pterosaurs. Uh, and then of course, over in Africa, we're getting sight. There's been, <laughs> there's been thousands of thousands of thousands of sightings 
of sauropods, yes. triceratops, uh, the flesh eaters, which was a type of pterodactyl that everyone usually thinks of when they think of, a, of, of the word pterodactyl. Uh, and then, of course, over in Indonesia and a lot of these areas that are really untouched by man still, that they're still off you know, off our grid, off our eyes in a way. And yet the people, right. the people that live amongst the, uh, live amongst the woods and live amongst these secluded areas, these tribes, people who have not seen science textbooks, they don't get the brainwashing material that we get with my modern science belief of geology and biology and evolutionary theory. And yet they're able to describe exactly what our mainstream science scientists have put together based on the fossils that they have found and they even have names for them like uh, like i said with the um with the uh, uh, africans that they called the sauropod dinosaur mokalima membe they called the triceratops nagobu and then they called the uh, pterodactyls the flesh eaters um which they just they only called them that because they liked to feast on decaying human flesh so when they when they would have dead and they would right. bury them they would find these things digging them up and eating the flesh off their bones um and it's just it's mind blowing, and I've also noticed that even some of the uh, deifications of spirit animals in the Northern American indigenous tribes are linking directly up to aquatic amphibia, uh, aqua aquatic aquatic uh, uh, reptilian dinosaurs and things of that nature. Yes. And you you cannot deny the connection. I mean, here and you know, Jason, I I apply what I call the ninety nine point five percent rule. I assume yeah. that ninety nine point five percent of all these sightings are either fake they're mis uh they're misrepresented or misdiagnosed or something in that nature that they're not actually legitimate signs but i will say that 0.5% out of all these sightings have truth in them and the fact that there are so many these people are relaying the same exact thing time and time again of physical characteristics where they're living where they're yeah. found and where they're sighted it's all lining up and it's all saying the same exact thing so there is truth to this and you cannot deny that correct oh no absolutely and, and the thing about the flesh eating right right there have been stories of people in uh and around the rio grande valley uh where they were having an open air funeral and a pterodactyl shows up to try and scavenge off the body right <laughs> So it's like we have these similar accounts, similar descriptions. Their behaviors and patterns seem to be similar. And it's not just that they're it's the same. They're removed from each other. That's at that point you have to start saying some people are seeing something, right? And, and even like you said, even if you knock off 90% of them, you're going to have stories like mine where it's like it was five feet from my face. You're going to have... Actually, uh, Ken Hovind, I have a book. Uh, there's there's a pterosaur sighting that he, from a, a truck driver named Allen, that he put up on YouTube. I actually called Dr. Hovind, spoke with him. That story is in Metrobooks Monsters. Oh, like, awesome. he's 20 feet from this thing, broad daylight. Mine was in broad daylight. Um, I have an account in Metrobooks Monsters from a personal friend of mine. She saw it uh, at night, but it literally flew in front of her. It, flew, it was beside her car, and again, there's plenty of light, so it wasn't like there was, um, like it was in the middle, you know, like it was pitch black. But then it finally, but then it actually, while it flies by her, it turns in front of her car. So again, it's it's within her headlights, like they they could see this thing. Hmm. The simple fact of the matter is, you have too many stories where people are just they could not possibly be misseeing something, right? It, they're looking at it for too long. It, it's not obscured. 
we can't just kick those off the off the shelf like everyone does. And the entire reason modern science wants to get rid of these stories, whether it's a living dinosaur or a Bigfoot or whatever, is because they don't fit into the worldview that they preach. Right. And 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 ultimately, this is what it comes down to. Everyone's like, oh, it's science versus religion. It's not. It's religion versus religion. Science is simply a tool. Right. What yep. people have called science is not actually science. It's just a it's a religious viewpoint. Exactly. It is a Darwinian, atheistic viewpoint, which is just as re- uh, much a religion as Christianity or even Hinduism. In fact, maybe even more so in many ways. Oh, I think it's definitely more so. <laughs> That's interesting. It's something that the scientific community should be excited about. And like you said, nope, they'd rather shove it under the carpet, ignore it, uh, not talk about it just, just because it doesn't fit their narrative, um, which, is, which is terrible because uh, so many people really would be just in awe uh, to understand that, wow, you know, we could look back at Scripture and we can start looking at this Bible and the truth that it speaks and, uh, and, and really start to put the world together in a different place. But instead, they'd rather be like, nope, we've been telling you this isn't the case your whole life and so we'll just continue to ignore it um and uh pretend like everyone's crazy right well that's easier than so again it goes back to this is a war for ideology this is and this is a religious war that's what this is it's a religious argument yep because one side absolutely wants to have a world where there is no god that's that's their that is the modus operandi which is why anything that that is runs counter to this Darwinian atheistic view must be kicked out. And really, true science would say either if it's about God, we can't say anything about it because God can't be put into a lab. We can't experiment on him, right? That's what science is about. Everything else is just, hey, this is where it goes. This is where it goes. It should have no opinion about where it's going, only how you arrive there. That's the point of science. The fact that you have such obvious political and religious leanings within the scientific community today, and really they've been around for quite a while, tells you that this is not science that we're dealing with. It's propaganda. Yep. Amen. Exactly. Amen. So, and, and you know, the other thing, Jason, I think what it really comes down to for the scientific community, just like how when they when we point out the fact that all these uh, missing link or evidences of a missing link or the link of man becoming uh going from primitive to modern man that they've all been 99.9 actually i'm sorry not 99.7 100 of them have been proven to be forged or completely fake or just drawn out of nowhere and the thing is that when presented to the museums that like this was debunked decades ago why haven't why is it not out of your museum and they say things like well what would we replace it with because <laughs> that, that's that's their answer and it's because the reason why that they fight this information so hard is because it destroys what they already believe. It's paradigm shattering for them. They cannot believe it because the thing is that if if they were to finally acknowledge that dinosaurs are still living amongst men, that first of all, they would have to answer how in the world they maintain genetic integrity to last this long for millions and millions of years, yep. which I mean, the obvious answer is that they're not millions of years old. They're only thousands. Um, and the thing is what they, it blows my mind because that should have already been thrown under the rug when they discovered that coelacanths were still alive back in 1938 in the Indian Ocean. You know, they, they believed because of the geologic column that they went extinct 325 million years ago, and yet we found them still living with no physiological adaptations, 
just fine. The way that we yeah. found them in the fossils or the way that we find them in the wild today, and the, and the answer still is, how do they maintain genetic integrity, breeding and breeding for hundreds of millions of years with no physiological adaptations, no adaptations whatsoever? Hmm. How did that happen? And they, they avoid it like the plague. Right. Yep. It seems like it should be common sense, but it's not. It's not, not for them. It, it is for us, um, and that's just it. The, you know, you're you're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but the darkness and principalities. Mm. And people's eyes are blind. Um, that's why so many times in the Bible it talks about you know, um, uh, to, to being able to see, you know, and seeing not just with your physical eyes, but really seeing the veil that's been pulled over us really uh, since since very early on. And um, it's unfortunate because uh, there's so many people that I know, you know, if they were really exposed to that, that the, the, the false teaching that has happened, it would change them as people, not all people, but it would change a lot of people when they would really go, wow. Um, <laughs> I remember when I was in elementary school and they told me this and like, that wasn't the case. Like, wait a minute. Yes. No, they, you know, people unfortunately have led to believe science is their God. You know, like you mentioned, it's their, it is a religion uh, at the end of the day. And, uh, and it, and it shouldn't be unfortunately, but Yep. It is what it is. But um, so, Jason, we're going to st- still stay on the topic of like still living of still living dinosaurs. I wanted to pick your brain on some things. Um, I, I'm assuming I'm assuming that when you see in uh, the book of Job, chapter 40, beginning in verse 15, where the Bible talks about uh, the behemoth, where God says, tells Job to behold now. And of course, you can't behold anything unless it's actually there and present uh, behemoth. I, I, I honestly think that is. That is obviously a Brachiosaurus or a Sauroposeidon, whatever you want to call them, giant sauropod. Um, I wanted to pick your brain on that a little bit and see if you came to the same conclusion. No, I, I do. Now, one thing that I think should be stated, um, when there is a difference. So, so like Behemoth and uh, Leviathan of Job right. is different from the Leviathan that's mentioned in Isaiah and Psalms. Exactly. Right? This is something that pops up a lot, and, and so let me and let me. I'm going to circle back around to your point by pointing out that in Isaiah it is a reference to it's a, it's an oblique uh, comment on Tiamat, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Babylonian uh, uh, treaties, and then earlier in Psalms it's more of uh, it's more going towards Lotan, which is actually where the word Leviathan comes from, and again. The thing is, Lotan and Tiamat are basically the same myth, just different cultures and different times. Um, and there's an interesting connection between that and the dragon of Revelation, but I, I won't diverge too far. The thing is, a lot of submissives will say, well, see, that's when, so they'll, they'll see that and they'll turn to Job and say, well, this must be the bull of heaven for Behemoth, and then Leviathan is still this chaos figure. And it's just Job, you know, referencing the gods of the, of the area at the time. And the thing is, while, yes, Isaiah is, the prophet is throwing shade at Babylon, and the psalmist is throwing shade at the Ugaritic texts and things in the Canaanites, Canaanite culture it is, and we see that all throughout the Old Testament. The thing about Job is this, it is clear that these are living, breathing creatures that are tangible, that are eating and drinking and, and doing things. Like, these are not supernatural creatures. Plus, in, in the chain, right, it, it starts small and keeps getting bigger and more dangerous as it goes. These are all real creatures that are described up till 
the point when we get to these sort of these spiritual monstrous creatures, right? right? These are clearly physical creatures, like switching from a physical creature to a non-physical or a philosophical creature makes zero sense in that chain. So the question becomes, well, then why would Isaiah and the psalmists use Leviathan as a stand-in for these chaos dragons uh, that are very clearly referenced in these other cultures? And the thing is this, something we miss uh, because we live in the Western world. We we have a Western mindset. The when you go back and w- you look at how the you know, Bronze Age people thought, personification was a common thing for them, right? Yes, sir. and particularly with the with with, uh, with the Hebrew, who they didn't want to use the names of these other gods, right? Because it was it's it's a law. They weren't supposed to. So what they did was, again, like, why are the angels always connected to the stars? Because the stars are away from us. They're these shining things. They're in a place we couldn't get to. So they they personify them. In the same way, what they saw, they saw this Leviathan creature, this massive, powerful, serpentine creature. And so for them, they used that word. It's like, that's Leviathan. And they, and they, they give it a spiritual meaning as well right right um just like how jesus did with a lot of his, that's exactly what jesus did with a lot of his parables too he used earthly things uh-huh. like farming and seed planting to uh, reference the will of god and the kingdom of heaven and we we see that all throughout the scriptures and you actually took the words right out of my right out of my mouth uh, it brings up you know the uh, scriptures of uh, as earth uh, as uh, on earth as in heaven uh, we can find things here on earth that pertains directly to the spiritual nation, spiritual nature of God and what is to come uh, and things of this matter. And we we see this all throughout other cultures where it talks about these giant uh, these giant beasts that we call uh, that we call dragons and dinosaurs. And they they, they almost always have some sort of spiritual connection to them as well. Um, it, it's it's undeniable. Exactly. And because of the power, they're so unique. They're unlike everything around us. And when you see in Isaiah, what Isaiah does is he uses Leviathan as, again, so it isn't, you only have, the thing is, it only makes sense in the context of Job. It's really, it's interesting thing. We don't see this in our English text at all. Um, so Job talks about Leviathan as being the, now, in our, most of our translations, talks about the king of the pride, right? Or king, or it's the king of all pride. The thing is, that if you if you go to the Septuagint, it makes it clear that this is just it's the king of the fish, right? It's all of the the aquatic animals. They, they're like Leviathan, this big, massive dragon-like figure that's a real, tangible, eating, breathing thing. Is so it's the king of all the aquatic animals. Well, when you look at it, at Isaiah, Isaiah is clearly referencing Tiamat and using Leviathan as a stand-in for that figure, who's also a stand-in for Satan, right? He's he's combining all that, and he's using that personification as a way of saying, guys, here we are. And then when it goes to, to the punishment of Babylon, it talks our translations talk about uh, jackals and, and things like that. But the word's actually Tanin. Uh, for for jackal, uh, some people have, have uh, the King James uses dragon is as is their version, but the original word was tanin. Well, tanin is a water monster, right? Um, 
it can be, if you're talking about the Nile, you're usually talking about the Nile crocodile. But there are other, it's just any massive large water animal. Well, by, well who puts a water monster in the middle of the desert? <laughs> you can't do that. Unless he's making a theological point, and he's done, he does. Because what he's saying is, well, we've got Leviathan as our Satan stand-in, right? He's a Satan stand-in. He's the he's connecting him to the Babylonian chaos goddess, and then once Babylon is destroyed, what is hanging out in its ruins? It's these Tanim, these other water monsters that are hanging out there. So what he's saying is, if Leviathan is Satan, then these smaller Tanim are demons or devils, and that's what's hanging out. And it's a connection that the ancient world would have made because. Otherwise, none of that makes sense. Right. right. But what they've done is they've, they've made Leviathan, a, a, which is a real figure, a real creature, or at least a species of creatures running around at the time, they, they, they connected these things. And they, so they were real animals, but they were personified and then used theologically. And the problem is many Semiticists, um, they sort of remove that aspect of it and they make it purely mythological. Well, then you get to Job, and it makes no sense, right? But the only thing that makes sense is for Behemoth and Leviathan to have been, as described, living, breathing, eating creatures. For, for Behemoth, it has a massive tail, it has a massively long neck, and it's just this massive creature. There's nothing other than a sauropod that it could be. There is nothing else in our uh, in our in our known the zoological and paleontological framework that's something that that fits that kind of description, right. right? Same thing with Leviathan. What is it? It is a very large, very dangerous, very toothy, armored <laughs> aquatic reptile that's clearly some sort of a dragon or dragon-esque creature. And well, that's a mothosaur. A, mo- a mothosaur. Okay, so let, I was about to say, because... Um, my research into the Leviathan, because I, I thought it was obvious what the uh, behemoth was. Now, my research in the Leviathan, because everyone has theories on what the Leviathan was. I know Dr. Kent thinks it, you know, he says it was the Tyrannosaurus, and I, I disagree with him on that. Some people say it was a Spinosaurus. I disagree with him on that as well. Uh, I I do believe that the Leviathan was what was what had been reported hundreds of times by sailors in the 1600s and the 1700s as this massive massive sea serpent with armor-like scales, teeth, and Mm -hmm. having steam foaming out of its mouth as it emerged from the waters. And, like, just the part of its body, you know, we're just talking, like, the upper 10% of its body reached out of the waters and its head went above the mast of these ships. And they said that its neck and and the body of this beast was as wide as the ship. So you're looking at something that has a neck that's 20 to 30 feet wide. You know, so th- and I'm like, I'm like, that's pretty obvious to me that that's Leviathan. It's in the water. It's yeah. a giant serpent. And obviously, and the guy and the men that even saw this beast, it was funny because as we as we study and we notice that Leviathan is obviously being used as a stand in for representation of Satan or Lucifer. It, it, the guy even said that uh, the guys that saw this thing, they said, if there was a devil, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, there it is, plain as day. That is Leviathan. So that's what I've came to my conclusion on. Now, I know you said Mothosaur. Is the Mothosaur the same exact thing? Yeah. I, well, so Mothosaur so so is more of a, a species, right? 
Uh, imagine a Komodo dragon the size of a bus or larger uh, with flippers. And that's basically what a mosasaur is, just arm, just a little bit more armored. They, in fact, some believe, some scientists kind of claim that they're related, that they're sort of this similar uh, ilk. And um, I'm willing to say it's not a mosasaur. I'm not, you know, wed to the idea. It just it matches with what we saw with, like, the U-248 monster, I believe. I write all this down because I can never remember names and designations. Um, World War One, right? There was a... a submarine um, a u-boat sinks a uh, a freighter and once and everyone's watching it go down well when the steam engine of that freighter blows up it literally knocks this large he describes it as a 30 or 40 foot long crocodile with webbed feet out of the water and it sort of rises on top of the surface of the ocean for like 30, 45 seconds, and then it goes back under the water. Wow. That, I mean, that just sounds like a monstasaur. Now, again, could there be some other creature? Sure. And if we find it, I'm all for it, right? I'm, I'm all for being wrong, but it's still closer than something than saying it doesn't exist, right? Right. Right. And, and the um, thing is, is like, so, uh, I'm sorry, Jason, but, uh, you know, I was going to say that uh, it, yeah. it, it's amazing to me because the, the ocean, we've only – and I and I still even disagree that they they even say we've only discovered or explored five percent of our ocean. So ninety five percent of what is the majority of the world is completely untapped as far as what we know is knowledge wise, knowledge base. And we're discovering yeah. they discover new aquatic species by the thousands every single year. Uh, and and oh, you know, and, and and to me it it makes me giggle a little bit because I'm like we're spending billions of dollars trying to launch things into space. Uh, and yet they won't go under under the seas where we're already living. And to me, it kind of tells me that it's because they know what's under there and they don't want to find it. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and another thing that I would say is, is that oh, yeah. you have all these under under the sea, they say freshwater caverns that are underneath the, the crust of the earth that are holding millions of gallons of water. Their life could be living yeah. in there that we don't even know about that is pulling back into the ocean in oh, some sort of a way that it could be holding something this large, you yes. know what I mean, where the water came from for the flood and stuff like that. So it's all, it's all, I, they say they only discovered 5%. I bet it's only one. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep. Well, it, it, so let me, let me take that thought one more, one more step, right? I'm not necessarily a hollow earth guy. I'm just not. But that doesn't mean that there aren't massive chambers beneath you know what we would consider to be solid mass there's no reason to speculate there couldn't be larger underground under underwater oceans that we just never see right i mean we know that aquifers exist right yes sir uh you know i mean in fact if you live in the middle if you live in the middle of the united states you drink water from an aquifer um so I would not be surprised if there were these deeper chambers of within the Earth. Maybe some of them are even, you know, not entirely filled with water. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there are ecosystems we are so completely unaware of that if we were to see them, we'd be like, oh, this is a thing. But, but let's go back to your point about why we spend all this time in space when we can't even spend time in water. In many ways, space is a lot easier to explore yep. than our ocean. It is. Our ocean, I mean, think about it. 
space is empty, right? It's like there's nothing to obscure it, but you get into some brackish water, you can't see in front of you at all, right? In in many cases, we're when we're talking about the ocean, we're talking about places where it's like you could have something the size of an elephant ten feet away from you. You'd never know it. <laughs> yep. At some of these depths, right? So it's like it's it's like what, how could somebody how could somebody that big hide pretty easily, like really easily, because you can't see it. That's the point of this of these deep ocean. Uh, but these deep oceans, you can't see it. We, we're we exploring kind of linearly, right? We're not really, you know, and by linearly, like 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet at a time. We're not exploring, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles. We're just looking like, oh, well, there's a bunch of empty nothing here, except a rock. We found a rock. So you're not going to see that under the ocean. And that's sort of a, a thing that people don't realize is just how difficult uh, that is. So, yeah. Something, and here's the thing, I'm actually open to the idea that there may be a lot of other creatures out there, um, like, we, it's very easy to sort of miss the connections between things, like, uh, Lake Champlain, they recorded echolocation, well, that's not usually a reptilian thing, I'm not saying they couldn't be, right, but that's more of a zoolodon kind of a thing, or a whale, or it's a whale, or a porpoise kind of a thing. I'm not. I wouldn't be surprised if perhaps the Lake Champlain monster is more connected to like the Zulodon, which is a type of quote-unquote primitive whale, right? Maybe the, some of these other animals aren't dinosaurs or some or uh, what we would typically think of as a dinosaur relative, but rather maybe they are or you know, large marine reptiles. Maybe some of them are mammals. They're just very primitive-looking animals. What? Let me take that back to my overall theory, right? Um, I call it the, you know, the overall biblical worldview. Let's get a, let's throw aside the age of the earth, let's, you know, old earth, young earth, creation. let's get rid of that argument. And let's even get rid of the argument of, well, did it happen? Was the flood 4,000 years ago, 10,000, 15,000? Let's put all that aside. The one thing you can say, regardless of how you read the Bible, is that there's a chain of events. There was a perfect earth that had more, a more robust, healthy ecosystem There was that included humanity. That ecosystem was destroyed, and a small handful of animals and humans survived. The earth now is filled with those descendants. Now... If that story is true, I believe it is, regardless of when you put everything, then then what would you expect to find? Well, you would expect to find fossils of many varied and diverse and very robust animals, and that's exactly what we find. We find snakes and crocodiles and armadillos, all of them the size of Volks- like buses and Volkswagen, be like you know. I'm in Texas. I know what an armadillo looks like, right? <laughs> the glyphodont is basically the size of a Volkswagen bug, and it's a just a freaking armadillo. And it's like, okay, <laughs> this is big. Beavers the size of human beings. They would have looked at you and been like puny. You know, <laughs> they, they would. You know, it's like never would I've ever thought of looking at a beaver and thinking I'm going to die. But that's how big they got. <laughs> 
then you right? get married. And, and that's true. And this is all fossil evidence that we found. Yeah, and, and I know exactly what you're talking about, where they found uh, the yeah. fossils of wombats. You know, these little tiny furry groundhog looking like creatures. And uh, well, they're not they're not super twenty, but super tiny. But they're the size of Mini Coopers in the fossils. And they find uh, dragonflies with fifty inch wingspans. Uh, they found uh, fossilized um, uh, fossils of pterodactyls with fifty foot wingspans. They found uh, yeah. uh, kangaroos that are twelve oh, feet tall. Yeah, yeah. And koalas. You know, Jason, I was going to say something else too. Uh, you know, a couple of references in the Bible to, um, you know, the fountains of the deep uh, crack open. And then you look at the Ten Commandments and it says, you know, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image of any likeness of anything that in the heavens above, um, you know, but in, in as he finishes down, not in the waters beneath the earth. And um, I've got several yeah. clients that are drillers and frackers. And I'll tell you the number one thing they, they have to deal with is water. What? Every one of them. Yeah. In fact, if you watch them when they're drilling and they snap, you will see a geyser come out of that drill like you've never seen before. And I'm talking about high pressure shooting straight up out of there. And they're yet they're drilling yeah. for gas or they're drilling for oil. They ain't drilling for water, but they have to go through it. So it is a yeah. common thing. Mm-hmm. And most of them are, are hauling in tankers. They got to haul that what the, it's really technically it's hazardous material but it's not really that hazardous but they have to haul that water out and it goes to a facility and it's treated and so on mm-hmm. um so you know there's definitely wherever they drill they already know we're going to hit a lot of water right and and by clients oh, yeah. to, and, and that, that's in dry <laughs> land when they're drilling they're not out in the ocean drilling they're literally oh, on land yeah. no yeah absolutely and, yep. and by clients jason he's referring to his uh the people that he insures my dad's an insurance agent during the day um i know we, we get a lot of butthurt butthurt atheists that like to come on our cast and they'll be like oh he's calling his uh ministry people his clients <laughs> and they, they would just jump on the opportunity so yeah. no we're not talking about those a listener ministry my dad's talking about the people yep. he insures insurance and everything clients. thank you for clarifying that yeah i know yeah. he's uh yeah I, I i like to say that the atheists get butthurt a lot um because i <laughs> i i have my own personal theory of why people believe in evolution but you know it, it pertains to that nature yeah. <laughs> um well, but uh so when you when you reject truth you'll believe anything but um True. Back to sort of back to the other point, though. The thing that you'd expect to see on the other end is a smaller, less diverse ecosystem. Everything that would exist afterward would have a parallel from the beginning. But then you'd also find animals that didn't adapt to the new environment, right? And I think when we talk about dragons, when we talk about some of these other creatures, I think what they are is there's that remnant of animals that didn't fully adapt, right? Like the bighorn sheep, it basically is unchanged from the fossil record. Right. They they just look the same. I think that, that what we consider to be cryptozoological animals are basically just animals that never, for one reason or another, they didn't adapt fully to the new environment. Maybe they changed a little bit, but they didn't fully change. They, they still retain their exotic nature, but they still stay in such a low population. They're still rare enough that they seem odd to us because we recognize that they don't fit here, right? They're just the remnants of another time. And so that's why they've sort of stood out against, uh, you know, from a, from a human perspective. But th- so for, in my opinion, things like cryptozoology is just they're the living evidence that the flood in the overall biblical worldview is correct and that it isn't the darwinian viewpoint because the darwinian viewpoint doesn't allow for these creatures to exist they don't allow for human footprints with dinosaur footprints they don't allow for 
hammers that that are made out of materials that we can't duplicate today. Like they, right. none of that fit. And they definitely don't which account. Is why it can't be dealt with. Yeah. Right. And they definitely don't account for giant human beings either. Uh, that just proves that we're getting small. We're getting smaller and weaker. Our genetic code is getting uh, is getting uh, is getting worse. Uh, and the fact that you know, obviously, I know that you know this that we find skulls that are missing that are missing the sagittal suture line, uh, which kind of proves that the human genetic code had some fondling done to it uh, in our in our past. Um, yeah, and, and especially no, yeah, no, the elongated skulls that are missing that that sagittal suture line. Um, so Joe Taylor, uh, he's the one who made the casts of those skulls. Um, I I hate calling people friends, but I do know them. Right, um, we're like, I'm working on a small project with him. Uh, hopefully, we can have it out this year. Uh, COVID kind of interrupted a lot of stuff. Right, um, but that's sort of the, one of the things I, I spent a lot of time sort of looking into because, as near as I can tell, I can't find a mammal. Forget primate, forget human. I can't find a mammal that doesn't have a sagittal suture. It seems to be one of those things that's just. Being a mammal on the planet Earth requires you to have that sagittal suture. It's just built into the DNA because of how we're born. The fact that you can have these elongated skulls without that sagittal suture, I find to be very telling. This is not what people, this is not a... A head, a head binding. You know, yeah, this is definitely not a head binding thing. Well, we find, we've even found embryos that have the elongated skull. But my point is, this is not just another, you know, odd population. Not every population, you know, some, okay, so something most people don't know. Not every population of humans have the same number of bones. Um, in fact, in South America, it's very common to have what's called wormian bones, which is where the soft spot on your head is, where your, where your parietal plates and your uh, occipital plate sort of come together and fuse. And there are what's called these wormian bones, and these, these teeny tiny bones in uh, certain South uh, American uh, populations, they, it's just these little teeny tiny bones, and they all fuse up in that one spot. Um, others have, you know, other places, you know, it's nothing major. It's just every population has a different bone count. They're usually these little divergent bone pieces, but we never see anything as radically different as a missing sagittal suture. So that tells me that this is a population that is unlike anything that we're familiar with mm -hmm. on planet Earth. This is not a normal uh, human population. Are they human? Yes. But are they of a traditional human origin? I don't think so. I think that that's... That lack of a, of a sagittal suture indicates there's something else going on there. And I think that's sort of a, I, I, I don't want to, I mean, this is wildly a field from pterosaurs, but um, I think something we often forget uh, in, for those of us who are interested in things like the Nephilim and some of these other things is, if we were to find, and, we, and everyone was like, yep, that's the Nephilim skeleton, it would come back as human, Right. What, right? It's not going to come back and say, like, well, here's this other non-human DNA. It wouldn't work because they are the offspring of humans and an angel. But the thing is, the human, the angel had to become human to mate, right? Exactly, which yep. they would so, copy human DNA. Right, exactly. Now, what we get, though, is it's an imperfect copy. It's sort of like the whole idea with the liger, 
like the liger <laughs> yeah. is a male lion and a female tiger. Well, the thing is, they're mis- the genes for size is in the other uh, is in the other sex on each different uh, species. So that's why if you have a, a I think it's called a tigon, those are actually much smaller because you basically have two genes for controlling size, so they get smaller. But the ligers, they get huge because that gene is missing. Right. I think that the Nephilim, the reason they're giants, is the same reason. They were missing certain genetic codes because it was, they, were, they were human, but they were not truly human. They, so they missed some key you know, points in the DNA. So that's why they appeared so much differently than us. Yep, they can't replicate what God did. <laughs> You know, exactly. It's a, it, it's a, they were wearing knockoff copies yep. of bodies. And so, you know, it's like you, you can tell the difference. Supposedly, I wouldn't know this, but it's like you look at the stitching of a knockoff Prada bag and a real Prada bag. It's like you can tell by the stitching. Yep. Same thing. They're wearing knockoffs, right? Right. So right. they messed up a, a, some way along the way. And, and, you know, since we're on the topic of giants and everything, uh, Jason, I wanted to get on the uh, topic of, um, of of Bigfoot and Sasquatch with you because I actually, in my theory, especially even after reading some of the uh, the proof of your of your book that you sent me uh, in the email the other day too, um, uh, I actually kind of think that the Sasquatch sightings that we're seeing are actually giants just wearing animal fur. Like the shamans uh, okay, used to do. Okay, so, yeah. Well, so here's the thing. I think that we're... You, so, okay, I mentioned that um, every Monday you can find me on Texas Front Porch. I'm sort of the co-host. Uh, I'm there for the, for my for my overly sexy nature, right? you got to bring a little <laughs> a little sex appeal to the show. Um, but we had, so a couple weeks ago, we sort of changed, not really changed, but we sort of had a thought on the show, which is we're doing something wrong, as, you know, as Bigfooters, right? Because, like, We've been looking for 50 years, pretty hardcore, and really, we haven't found anything. We've found plenty of trackways and things like that, but I'm like, really, nothing has advanced. So I said, well, maybe we're doing this wrong. And I, and I thought, well, maybe one of the key problems here is that we have um, multiple types of phenomena, but we're all trying to put in the same Bigfoot or Sasquatch box, right? And... One of these things would be like the Janoskawa, which is this tribe of what people have said are Bigfoot. But when you really get into the details of them, they sound like Nephilim giant. I think the level like cave giant. And then we got one step further because I was kind of in a mood on Monday. But I was poking at him at text, my co- the co-host, and we were going at things a little bit. And finally, he asked this question because I was, I was, you know, talking, we were talking about disinformation. And he said, "Well, what if Sasquatch is the distraction?" And let me follow that up because I, we're running out of time, so I'm going to jump ahead a little bit on this. The point is, what if there is a Sasquatch, and let, regardless of what it is, let's say that it is out there, but they're in small populations. But then we have this other phenomena, like the Nephilim, like demons, like. Uh, regional spirits, right? Yep. What if they are hiding as Sasquatch? Like they're they're doing their best to sort of be seen as part of that pheno- of the Bigfoot phenomena to cover their real intention and their real 
uh, and their real goals. So, to your point, I do agree with you. I think that there is, I think it's absolutely possible that what we have is, it's, it may be all of the above. It may be that there is a Bigfoot that's a primate that's, you know, maybe it's just a gigantopithecus walking around. But then we may have feral humans, but they're not humans. They're Nephilim, and they're giants, and they're, and they're trying to hide as Bigfoot so that essentially they can, they can mask their behavior by having us follow and look at these other creatures. Same thing with regional demons. Maybe they're appearing as something that we would mistake as Sasquatch in order for us to be drawn to them. It's, it's an interesting point. I, I mentioned in the book goat, about Goatman's Bridge out in uh, Denton, right? Right. Uh, that when I went there, I started taking pictures, and I noticed that one of the claims for it was that perhaps the goat man of that area was was a uh, a demon that had been brought over or conjured by uh, some say some Satanist cult that met in and around the bridge. But in, in, I noticed that even if that was not the case, if that bridge had never originally been used for satanic rituals, it is now. Right. What if? And, and so that started getting me to ask the question: What is the nature of worship? Right. Right. Like, let's look at all of these cryptozoological creatures. What what do people end up doing? They go to specific places to observe. They're looking and thinking about these creatures that were supposedly seen there. They're visiting the same spots. They're giving it attention. They're making. Uh, little statues and figurines to sell. Yeah, right. It is like this may be an act. Like this may be the biggest in many ways. And I'm, 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 I'm sort of for this. It may be that cryptozoology is itself a a cover to hide the, the fact that there are demons and supernatural creatures running around. Because if you were just to remove the word Bigfoot from a lot of these sightings, right, so much of, of what's observed would fit very nicely with stories about the Fae or the Leshy or the Shadim, like, uh, or, or, or the Satyrs. Of the, it's like, it, it just it very easily, it's like it just snaps back into place of one of these supernatural creatures that we've heard in many cultures all around the world like they fit right in there and, and this would all kind and of fit in, realize, well, oh yeah and this would I'm all sorry. kind of this would all kind of fit into your topa theory about how people are actually seeing spirit real spiritual entities but they're uh, presented they're presented in a way that the people can actually accept and see it physically and that would probably be based on their own spiritual insights and their own frequency and how they all and how they would perceive a spiritual being in the flesh Exactly. And this is the same thing that we're seeing, like you said, with the UFO phenomenon. Nick Redfern, John Keel, a lot of big-name ufologists have all pointed out, they're like, hey, none of the, none of the stuff about the UFO phenomena makes sense right. from an alien perspective. Like, they just don't make sense. So they've even pointed out, like, this the only thing that really, you know, this, this structure, they're like, this is weird. And what's funny is even the people who are like, yep, no, they're aliens, they're, they're extraterrestrials, they will all tell you, every last one will say, the demons of yesterday are the aliens of today. Oh, absolutely. People forget the supernatural that's in this world. And it's amazing how quick 
they will be glad to believe in everything Aliens, else yes. uh, that other than God. They believe in, I mean, just anything else. And that's like you mentioned, it is, it's part of the deception, the distraction. It's like, okay, yeah, no, God isn't real, but everything else we tell you is, <laughs> you know, exactly. yeah. well, it's easier. It's more comfortable because at the end of the day, and like I said, it, I, I like to focus on the beginning. And I like to focus on the end because I believe it's the middle that matters, right? When, when Jesus went, one of the most valuable studies I ever did was into was getting into the feasts, the biblical feasts. I, I, I hate the phrase Jewish feasts because they were God's feasts, they're biblical feasts. Yeah, I'm tired of those Jews it's, taking I mean, everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's like, they, exactly. It's like studying how they were practiced is really important, and you understand what Jesus was doing, like every aspect. When... The, when you have the story that you know the scapegoat, and they were and they were putting the sins of the of the of the nation on that scapegoat to be sent out for the demon Azazel, they put their hands on the uh, their the palms of their hands on the head of the goat, and then sent it and proclaimed the the sin. When Jesus, after he finally was like, "Fine, if y'all aren't going to be able to get me, you know, railroaded through here, let me just tell you who that I am, God, so we can get on with this thing." <laughs> And what do they do? The Sanhedrin, the priests, they are smashed. They're, they're literally, it says that they use the palms of their hands to strike Jesus in the head. And what were they proclaiming? Blasphemy. That is the ultimate sin of humanity. It is blasphemy. Because what we do with sin is that we take the things that God has told us to do, and we've said, no, we're our own gods. I'm going to make my own decisions. I'm going to reject God in his authority, and I'm going to do what I want to do. It's ultimately blasphemy. And so, of course, we'll buy into anything that allows us to hold up this idea that we aren't accountable to God, that we can be our own masters. It's, it is what we have to do to keep to hold on to that sin nature that we have, which is the, which is the only thing that separates us, is that God's called us, and we recognize what we've done. We recognize our blasphemies, and we've turned from it. We recognize that we that we uh, that, that he is real, and we have accepted his rulership. But for most people, they want to hold on to that blasphemy, and they will do anything that will allow them to do it. Right. Amen. And then, Jason, I got a I got one last question for you, and then I'll go and let you go here. And I appreciate all the time you given uh, you've given us today. Um, uh, and I definitely would like to come on to the uh, Paracrypt, uh, Trinity Cryptid Research uh, uh, page with you and with you in text. And actually, I would like to share an experience that I had. Um, and I'll go ahead and save that for later. I mean, you can talk about it some other time. But um, uh, yeah, we'd love to have you on. Awesome, it'd be great. Um, now, I did want to ask you a quick question. What do you think about the theory? that the National Forests of America were some sort of brokerage uh, treaty agreement between the United States and these, uh, the, between the United States government and these cryptid beasts. You know, um, I think it kind of lines up with what, with what we see, right? Let's, um, let's go back to something that, in, it's sort of controversial, right? This this Eisenhower contract that was made, quote unquote, with aliens, right back in the fifties. You talk to people like Nick Redford, and they'll say, "Well, that's a preposterous idea because if it couldn't possibly happen. Why would aliens ever make this contract?" 
But there are many people, including Eisenhower's own granddaughter, who said it absolutely happened. Many ufologists will say it absolutely happened. And for me, it makes perfect sense because they're demons. The president, as his political head, has spiritual authority to make a deal like that with supernatural creatures. I would not be surprised in the least to find that this that there is a that there were contracts made with certain entities in exchange for something, right? Uh, whatever that may be, I don't know. But I would I be surprised to find out that, that was the case? No. In fact, it makes in fact it truly makes perfect sense because I think that something we, we as modern Christians miss is the kingdom aspect of of rulership of, of the world, right? The the fact that there were spirits over nations, over people groups, things like that. Let's not forget we miss the. Uh, that a lot. Let's not forget the uh, the the one sample of that we have for sure in the scripture. Second Corinthians chapter four verse four. Uh, well, yeah, well, you have the yeah. devil offering Christ all that he can see. There's a contract, right? Just just worship me, right? And I will uh-huh. give you control and this power. So here you are. You you have the same thing. Here you have, you know, a, a, a God in the flesh here. You have Jesus. And then you have a spiritual spiritual being on the other side saying, no, 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 I'll give you all this. Just do this. So it wouldn't, it's not, it's not far-fetched or surprising that that would happen throughout time. Mm-hmm. And, and certainly we know today, uh, satanic worship. I mean, it, right now it's, it's actually being thrown in our face so hardcore. So it would never be surprising oh, to yeah. me that beings are making any sort of deals or any sort of packs with, with certainly the evil in the world. Cause they ain't making it with God. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's the thing is as humans, we have certain degrees of authority on over the planet. I would not be surprised again to find out that there would be some kind of a contract like that. In fact, it makes perfect sense because uh, C.S. Lewis in his writings uh, in Screwtape Letters, he talks about this theory of the materialist witch, right? Uh, And I think what we're seeing now with the UFO phenomena is this emergence of the material witch where you can have people who could believe in the supernatural, but they they don't process it as supernatural. They still think it's some sort of physical thing, like they're aliens or they're from another dimension, things like that, right? I wouldn't have been. I would not be surprised if 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 70 years ago, there were a series of contracts made with the United States government and probably other governments around the world as well, where it's like all these supernatural entities said, "We're kind of you know maybe they came as UFOs, maybe they came as Bigfoot, whatever." But it's like, look, we'll do this thing over here. You do this thing over there because they wanted to stay out of sight. They wanted to keep themselves hidden so that we could be, as a culture, brainwashed into materialism, into this, into, um, this atheistic Darwinian dogma. And then when it became too much and when, and when that, when that would start to fall, Satan was already there with the whole UFO phenomena to catch us, right? To give us a an out so we could all become, as a culture, material witches. Uh, so I would not be surprised if that was the case and those kinds of contracts existed. Absolutely. Wow. Amazing. Well, you know, Jason, I appreciate all the time you've given us today and, uh, uh, your research is top of the line. You're by far one of my. You're by far my favorite uh, cryptozoologist researcher. Uh, you're not a guy that 
is uh, arrogant and holds holds true to the theories that you had before. You're always willing to accept new information, new data when it comes into play and to change accordingly. And I always appreciate how you relate everything back to biblical origins. Uh, it's it's always nice to hear that because uh, I think there's too many Christian researchers that get cut up in their own research and they disregard the Bible when it comes to their theories. But you you definitely do not do that. Uh, that means a lot to me. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for coming. We appreciate yes, it. Yes, sir. And I, I mean, everyone, I'm going to go ahead and I will link the Trinity Paracrypted uh, YouTube channel in the description links as well as uh, Jason's uh, email. If that's okay with you, Jason. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, that's that's great. Because if anyone's got any sightings of anything, please send me an email. I'd love to know. In fact, uh, I'll be doing some more stuff here. I'm hoping to bring Siru Papers back to my website uh, and I'm going to try and turn it into sort of a flood museum, online flood museum thing that will be more active. So, um, like I said, lots of great things to come. I'd love to hear from anyone and everyone. I really appreciate you all having me on the show. Awesome. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you, much. Take care. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Awesome. All right, everybody. Well, that was our interview with Jason McLean, uh, cryptozoologist, uh, creation science advocate paranormal researcher that was fantastic so i hope you all enjoyed uh this is to help you in your spiritual walk and help open your eyes to what the earth and the nature of the earth truly is especially when pertaining to the original creation and the spiritual reality of our existence thank you for listening guys i hope you enjoy yeah thank you everybody talk to you next time